0: Welcome
1: to Working for Women, the Independent Women's Forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, and welcome to the Independent Women's Forum podcast. I'm Inez Stetman, Senior Policy Analyst for IWF, and with me today to celebrate National School Choice Week is Lindsay Burke, the Director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for being here, Lindsay.
0: Thanks for having
1: me. Okay, so this week is National School Choice Week. Um, we celebrate programs that enhance educational freedom, such as educational, um, education savings accounts, tax credit scholarships, vouchers, charter schools, homeschooling, and more during this week. So given the fact that we're in this, this sort of week of reflection and celebration, where would you say the movement for school choice is right now compared to its start back in the early 1990s?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen such dramatic growth over the past two decades in particular. And I think that that's something that uh, a lot of your listeners might not even realize how rapid the growth has been in both the number of options that are out there and the number of kids who are benefiting from these options. So if we look back to the early 1990s, prior to 1991, there were really no private school choice programs in operation, not sort of modern private school choice programs that we think about. There were a few uh, what we would call proto school choice options, so some what are called town tuitioning programs in Maine and Vermont, but really it wasn't until 1991 that we saw the first program enacted, and that was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so throughout the 90s, it was still a relatively limited number of programs. We were single digits throughout the 1990s, and then in the year 2000, We finally hit double digits. We had 10 private school choice programs in operation across the country. So bear in mind, that was 2000. There were 10 programs, so not that many programs. Today, we are up to 65 private school choice programs operating in 29 states and D.C. I mean, that is just incredible growth in a pretty short amount of time.
1: Absolutely. So the programs have definitely grown um, a ton, the number of programs as you said has exploded over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, we do have a long way to go, though, when even in the yeah. states that do have a lot of these programs, um, sometimes like Ohio, for example, has has five <laughs> different private school choice programs, but a lot of them are still fairly small. Isn't that right? They even states like Florida and Arizona uh, that are, are really pro-choice um, in this they get educational freedom context, I should point out, um, <laughs> really pro-choice we're still looking at only, I mean, under 5% of the student population in those states is enrolled in these private
0: school choice programs. I mean,
1: um, where would you like to see the movement go in the next couple decades?
0: Yeah, so, and that's right. And even we can look at it a different way at the raw number of kids participating across the country. We're still at about, I think, right under 500,000 or so. So, you know, if you consider there are 49 million kids in the public system across the country, we're still talking about a relatively small proportion of kids benefiting from private school choice. However, as you indicate, there are states where the concentration of uh, kids exercising choice is much higher. So Florida is a really good example of that. Florida is home to the largest school choice program in the country, the tax credit scholarship program there, and they have over 100,000 kids benefiting from that option. So there are states where it's concentrated, the the growth. Um, the other thing that I would point out is not only are we seeing um, a shift, I would argue, towards when state policymakers are thinking about choice options toward more universal options, but they're also leaning toward more innovative options. So two quick examples. Um, Nevada Nevada, a couple of years ago had a private education savings account program uh, signed into law. It has not yet gone into effect because there's some back and forth about the financing mechanism for their education savings account. However, when, because I'm optimistic, when it eventually does (laughs) go into effect for families, 463,000 kids in Nevada will be eligible for that ESA option. So that will be the first truly universal education choice program. So every single kid in Nevada in a public school, once that program goes into effect, will be able to receive an ESA and do any sort of private education option that they want. So that'll be a major step forward. And then also, as I said a second ago, the types of programs are becoming more innovative. I think Most state-level policymakers now, when they're thinking about doing some sort of education choice program, are really leaning toward ESA options, which do everything that a traditional school voucher and tax credit does, but also provides a whole additional level of flexibility for families.
1: Yeah, why don't you actually explain a little bit how an ESA differs from a voucher in terms of what the experience is like for the family and what they're able to do?
0: Yeah, so I I really like, so education researcher Matt Ladner has a really good sort of example of this, of the difference, and he actually has two good examples. One, he says, well, you can think about a voucher, which is basically a coupon to go to a single private school of choice and pay tuition as being a good option, but not quite as innovative as, say, an Amazon gift card, which would still enable you to pay for whatever service you want to pay for but also allows you to buy piecemeal products. So we can think about an ESA and a voucher that way, that a voucher is more like a coupon to pay tuition at a single private school of choice, whereas an ESA still allows you to pay tuition. You get the money that would have been spent on your child in the public school deposited directly into an account that you control. You can use that to pay tuition, but Since it's piecemeal, you can also pay for a private tutor if your child needs it. You can buy uh, textbooks, curriculum. You can pay for special education services and therapies, anything that your child needs to be successful. And so it really is this sort of a la carte uh, way to deliver private education funding and options to a kid. Um, The other example that Matt Ladner provides is that we can kind of think about the difference as being the difference between a rotary phone, which does its technology really well, right? If you have a rotary phone, you can make a phone call. It never fails you, but that's all it does versus the ESA being more like an iPhone that still allows you to make a call, but you can access all of these other apps and options as well. So I think he, he provides a pretty good example of the difference with that.
1: Well, that sounds wonderful, but let's take a moment, maybe uh, a little downer moment, and let's talk about some of the dangers or, or the things that might like challenges, the growth of educational freedom in the coming years. What what do you think that uh, education reformers or families who are fighting for school choice have to watch out for, for the, in the next, I don't know, five years or so?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, anytime we have uh, great options in place, education choice options, we have to watch out for regulations that might uh, end up sort of thwarting those options long term. Um, And I can give you a few examples of that. We, Corey DeAngelis at the Cato Institute and I, uh, we surveyed private school leaders in Florida and we asked them about um, whether or not they would like to participate in a private school choice program. And we asked them about types of regulations that might dissuade them from participating in a private school choice program. And what we found was that If you layer on certain regulations, private schools are much less likely to participate, which of course damages uh, school choice long term. So, a couple of examples we surveyed about 3,000, sent out a survey to about 3,000 private school leaders, and found that if you require private schools to do open enrollment and basically not have any say in their admissions policies, that that reduces the likelihood that a private school will participate in a private school choice program by about 70%. And then the same thing happens when you require a private school to take the same state test that public schools take. So that regulation reduces the likelihood that a private school will participate by about 44%. And so if as a policy community, we want to advance choice because we want to have choice, right, choice in the types of schools that participate and ultimately the options that are available to families, we have to be really, really careful about how these programs are regulated because if we overregulate them, often that's done in the name of, I'm doing air quotes, but accountability, then we know that private schools and even high quality private schools in particular will be less likely to participate, which ultimately limits options for families down the road. So
1: you're saying that we might have a choice in name, maybe, but not a real diversity of choices on the ground for parents to actually choose from. Uh, right. Recently in the news, we had that whole flap about Karen Pence last week, um, the fact that she teaches art at a Christian school. Um, what role then does that real on-the-ground diversity of options when it comes to curriculum or values or school culture or yeah. uh, religious affiliation or a thousand other sort of qualities that a family might be looking for for their kid, what role does that diversity play in
0: school choice? Yeah, I mean, it's critically important. This is the reason why, when we know this now, that families want to exercise choice, First and foremost, they list uh, religious instruction followed by moral and values and character instruction. These are two things that are just critically important to families when they're engaging in the school selection process. Um, Jason Bedrick at EdChoice and I, we conducted what is uh, currently the largest ever survey of a private school choice program, we had about 15,000 parents respond um, to our query in Florida. So we surveyed the tax credit scholarship program there. And that's exactly what we found, that their number one reason for exercising school choice was to have access to a religious environment or instruction. And then as I said, that was closely followed by morals and character and values based instruction. And so, you know, this is a big part of the reason why parents are exercising choice is they want character development, they also want school safety, and they want all of the other academic benefits as well. But I think on this, this issue with the, the second lady, I mean, this is something that uh, policymakers and school choice um, advocates really need to, to think about moving forward. I mean, this is a private Christian school that is upfront about what it expects of families and students and teachers. They are clear about that on the front end. And then families and students and teachers knowing what that private school is offering is selecting in to that option. And so this is something that both the school and the family see as a great benefit to them. It's something that parents are seeking out. And again, you know, we've got to be really cognizant of not sort of limiting these options moving forward by effectively trying to replicate what the public system does. I mean, parents exercise choice because they want something different. We need to make sure those differences are honored and able to flourish long-term.
1: I couldn't agree more. Well, thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast to celebrate School Choice Week with with us, Lindsay. Um, That was Lindsay Burke, the Director of the Center for Education Policy and the Will Spillman Fellow in Education with the Heritage Foundation. I'm Inez Bettman with IWF, and thanks so much for listening to the Independent Women's Forum podcast today. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.